Welcome to Speculative Sandbox. This is Vicky Lawn, and I'm going on a short hiatus to work on book revisions, but I've asked my fellow author friends to take care of the podcast while I'm away. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Speculative Sandbox on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, to get episode notifications and upcoming news. I look forward to chatting again soon. Hi, I'm John James Minster. I write and publish horror stories. Welcome to my author takeover of the Speculative Sandbox podcast. For the next few minutes, I'm going to discuss building stories that pull and lock people in, like baking a good pie each time with the correct ingredients and timing. We'll begin by briefly recapping the 39 allegedly haunted paranormal hotspots I've visited thus far in the past six months, all to promote my latest book release, The Vengeful Dead. If you wish, watch these unsettling Minute 30 reels on my website, johnjamesminster.com. Rule number one, make the fiction seem authentic. I filmed these reels at allegedly haunted inns and places built in centuries past in Pennsylvania and New York, an old courthouse, a long-closed mental asylum, and a current asylum housing 218 vicious criminally insane, the site of the great 19th century train wreck, a burnt-down murder house that is far worse than Amityville, a friend's historic Valley Forge home, which was once headquarters to General Cornwallis, and also the stone home of my 8th grade social studies teacher, these two alleged hauntings I experienced personally. The haunted Philly home of Edgar Allan Poe, a Potter's Field Revolutionary War Square, an abandoned New York prison, the oldest continuously active U.S. military fort, an old covered bridge used for criminal hangings and suicides, haunted hotels and taverns, a burnt-down Catholic boys' school haunted by a murdered child, which is a case still unsolved, several Revolutionary War bloody battlefields where enemy ruthlessness was especially inhuman. One thing all these locations have in common, using EVP recording equipment, thermometers, infrared movie cameras running all night in the darkness, and electromagnetic measurement devices, something scientifically measurable yet unexplainable is happening in all of these paranormal places. Then there are the many eyewitness employees and contractors who quit over objects moving under their own power, apparitions, disembodied voices and sounds, tapping on backs and shoulders, cold grips around arms, being shoved downstairs with no one else around. Truth is sometimes scarier than fiction, but my job isn't to make documentaries or write nonfiction. My job is to find my fellow jaded horror fans, connect with them through my writing, and scare them to the point of leaving reviews stating that my stuff is scarier than Stephen King. That's what's happening. They're saying they've lost sleep after reading that they fear the long, dark hallways at night and sleep with the lights on, to fear that eldritch, hungry thing living under the bed and inside the closet and jumping at every shadow. But no matter how real they are, ghosts cannot deeply wound you. 
Demons can, as is documented in both the Old and New Testaments, but not ghosts. With rare exceptions like poltergeists, ghosts cannot physically harm you. Therefore, they are neither horrifying nor terrifying. How then do I scare the unscarable reader? In whatever genre you write, we must leverage truth in the fiction. In my case, strictly supernatural horror stories crafted to instill feelings of fear and terror within even the most jaded horror fiction fans, all of my stories use the paranormal. That last great earthly frontier where most people need to die to prove or disprove its existence. People may say and outwardly believe that the supernatural world doesn't exist, but they aren't certain. Of course, not everyone's into horror. But take, for example, horror author Stephen King's story, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Maybe you've seen the movie. It has some violent moments, but contains zero supernatural horror. Yet, in my opinion, it's the greatest prison break and plutonic love story ever written. Why is it so good? Because we as readers forget that it's fiction. The story, the situation, the characters are all 100% believable. This story could have happened in real life. We are so emotionally invested in the characters, immersed in the dreadful, dank prison society, the anxious and dangerous atmosphere, so completely absorbed by the plot, and so deeply satisfied with the conclusion, where the bad guys lose and the good guys win, we forget that this is only a tale. We'll discuss viewpoint and how to weave these elements to create tension and keep readers turning pages long past their bedtimes. Rule number two, the world you create must feel real. Do your research. There's no shortcutting it. The World Wide Web has redacted your excuses about not going to the public library. Oh, but John, it's a fact that authors need to write what they know. Really? Is that a fact? If you knew everything you need to know about people, places, things, human desires, fears and motivations, and how your extraordinary characters respond to extraordinary forces and situations acting upon them within this humdrum, predictable, ordinary world, then hell, why write? Know it all. Go on Jeopardy show and stay there until you've amassed the fortune you crave. My books have required hundreds of hours of research. My promotional reels have required at least 50 hours of research prior to traveling to these locations and filming. Time spent at these locations. Retakes. Editing. The investment is no fewer than 100 hours, and I still have half a dozen more reels to knock out before New Year's. To me, writing is fun. None of it ever feels like work. The editing, the publishing, the back and forth, all of it, it's pure joy. Marketing my writing, however, feels exactly like what I used to do in my 35-year career ahead of corporate marketing. Research doesn't feel like work to me because I'm learning many things, which is fun. Your readers want to learn something too, not just feel entertained. If you want to win over hearts and minds, do your research. Example, one of my Vengeful Dead stories titled Magus involved my researching resident Las Vegas casino professional magicians, which I knew nothing about prior. Also, Mecca, the Kaaba, and the 360 pre-Islamic gods and what each meant to the disparate Arabic tribes 
as their scary, bloodthirsty patron gods. A more general example, you know what scares you, but I don't. I know what scares me, but you don't. We tend to hide our fears because we consider them weaknesses. We reveal them to others sparingly, if at all. We don't go around blabbing to everyone who listen what scares us. In my research, I learned that most surveyed males fear castration and mutilation more than they fear death. Thus, I built my story Magic 8-Ball around these fears. Before doing my research, I had no idea this was a fact. My stories often begin as nocturnal dreams, where the Dreamweaver gives me anywhere from 20 to 60% of all the elements, characters, faces, and bodies, and even hair color, all of whom are strangers to me in real life. Never do they tie into people I actually know. I hear the pitch and timber of their voices in my dreams. My dreaming mind assesses their distinctive, often troubled personalities. I receive atmosphere, mood, semi-complete plots in my nightmares. It's totally entertaining. I so look forward to sleep every night because it's like a free subscription to the world's scariest horror movie network. I don't know why it is, but I remember dreams going back to age seven, okay, in detail. That's just how I'm wired. But my job as writer is to get it all down, assign names to characters, fill in the gaps using research-based imaginative storytelling. These dreams are given to me like mini horror movies with distinct scenes, and that's how I write them. Like watching a horror movie or recalling memories of some actual event with each chapter involving at least one distinct scene, sometimes more. A word about narrative viewpoint. I write in one of two viewpoints. Some of my stories are best told from the first-person point of view. I use it when it's essential for readers to intimately get to know the lead character, which is one of the things that make the first-person narrative story so special. But it is an extremely limiting viewpoint since the only parts of the story that can be told are those the first-person narrator experiences. This necessarily eliminates all those great scenes where the bad guys are plotting something terrible for the heroic protagonist for whom we're rooting, which the reader knows about, but the protagonist does not. For example, imagine Stephen King's The Stand without the scenes involving Randall Flagg or the trash can man. The story would suffer big time. Third Person Limited is multiple characters telling the story through their own vo uh, viewpoints. It's freeing. It's total liberty. One of the unbreakable rules of Third Person Limited, however, viewpoints can only shift after a scene or chapter break. For scene breaks, I just use the space between paragraphs. This eliminates the jarring experience of jumping from one character's mind into another's during the same scene, which is one of my huge problems with the third-person omniscient point of view. I never use it. It's annoying. Third-person limited also allows the author to create complex plots where the action takes place in different locations at the same time. And finally, third-person limited eliminates the maddening omniscient narrator who plays no role in the story except to tell the tale. Speaking of egos, if you want to hold your readers... Kill your ego. You're not that important. You're the tail. The story is the dog. The story is the head. Don't be self-indulgent. Just tell the damn story. But do it from multiple character viewpoints. 
I adore everything Neil Gaiman has published, one of my favorite living authors. But in his graveyard book, a little boy gets up in the night, micturates, and returns to bed. So like that scene in Paul Newman's The Verdict, the greatest lawyer movie ever of all time, defense lawyers caution their client, the criminally negligent doctor, not to say she aspirated into her mask. Just say she vomited into her mask. Because 50-cent words can detract from the main point. To read Edgar Allan Poe today, you need to keep a dictionary at the ready. Today's readers might not want you as a writer to expand their vocabulary. So just keep that in mind as you write. We, the audience, are connecting dots. Individual characters cannot, as the story momentum moves us ever closer to guessing the plot. It's good to speed up the pace gradually, Move it faster, move it faster. Just don't be ostentatious, self-indulgent. Drag the story out just to enjoy the beauty of your own words. If a word, sentence, paragraph, or chapter has no direct bearing on the plot, adds no meaning, or feels gratuitous, kill it. Kill your darlings. Save the story. As readers, we don't know how it will end, but we can feel the tension building. With all these different character sub-stories happening at the same time, we can be certain something climactic and huge is going to happen to our characters. We turn pages because we need to know exactly what. We love some of these characters, others we despise, some we fear, and we fear the very real inhumanity embraced by some of these characters. Your characters must evoke some emotion in readers, be it sympathy, solidarity, repulsion, fear, etc. I've been given high compliments from reviewers who say I have a knack for writing truly dark, evil, horrifying antagonists. And no, I don't write evil characters from experience. Our third-person limited story is told through the actions and thoughts of each character who lives through it, allowing the reader to do the same. This, in my view, is one of the primary reasons why we, why we read fiction. So why wouldn't an author use a point of view like Third Person Limited that does this so effectively? To me, it's a no-brainer. This is the way to build tension. Say it again. Extraordinary people in an ordinary world reacting to extraordinary forces bearing down on them, each character looking at the same fact set from a different viewpoint and with differing motivations for what they do and why they do it, and different conclusions they so ardently desire. And pro tip, so as not to piss off editors, to indicate thoughts versus dialogue, I italicize those sentences. When characters speak, I use quotation marks. I like Garamond 11 or 12 font. Editors seem to like it. Times New Roman and Courier are fossils. Speaking of which, it might be helpful to think of your story as a dinosaur fossil embedded in sandstone. Your job is to gently excavate the old bones of it, assemble these in the correct order, add flesh, organs, and skin, then paint a Jurassic background so real you can smell and taste it, along with seeing it in all its vivid color with plenty of movement, weird lighting, Movie producers have CGI and all sorts of technology tools to share their vision with you and earn their Academy Award. You, sucker, only have just words, that's it. So you need to make everyone count. Using deeply researched facts, 
dialogue between extraordinary characters that is not in any way strained or unnatural. Having the characters react to forces bearing down on them precisely as we would expect and want our heroes and villains to react and throw in at least one super surprising plot twist and end with a strong conclusion. No cliffhangers. We readers hate them. Generally speaking, a story should place our protagonist in ever more deepening doo-doo until all hope seems lost. Like every Jean-Claude Van Damme, Sylvester Stallone, and Chuck Norris movie, where the bones of this common plot skeleton are as visible and predictable as the sunrise. Through brute strength, creativity, ingenuity, persistence, prayer, dedication, marksmanship skills, or some other effort combined with inconceivable bravery in the face of such overwhelming odds, our protagonist defeats the problem handily. That's how stories go. Speaking of story endings, think of classic songs by great bands, which at the end of them fade out instead of concluding on a final note or percussion beat. Fade outs we know are recording engineers' trick, it's fakery, trickery, dishonesty. In a real concert, the band would never end in a fade-out because it is impossible to do it live. Neither should a recorded song end in a fade-out. It's lazy and we don't like it. Beginning, middle, end. Be certain that all reader questions get answered in the end. Leave no dangling participles, unanswered questions. The hero gets the girl or the money or freedom or saves lives, and the villains reap what they sowed. Or in the case of some of my horror stories, everybody dies, including the protagonist. Yay! Smile! Cheer! Now, you droogs go and paint me an award-winning masterpiece, and please, when I read it, I want to feel something. Maybe you can make me think a little, but I'd rather you manage to tap my emotions. Don't be self-conscious, either. Who cares if your friends and neighbors read your stuff, and discuss you negatively along the Coconut Telegraph, go for it. They aren't your audience. They never were, never will be, and thus their opinions matter not. Reach deep. Write that thriller that thrills, the romance that seduces, an action-adventure that quickens the pulse, a mystery that nobody who skips to the ending can accurately guess, or horror that could readily become a movie parents won't allow their children to watch. You'll be glad you did someday. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.